Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And thank you so much for joining us this week. You're going to be so glad you did because we have a great episode. Jasmine's guest is, once again, Catherine Kelleher, who is the founder of the New South Wales Hen Rescue, which is, of course, in Australia because that's where New South Wales is. And she's also the author of a brand new book, Saving Animals, A Future Activist's Guide. Catherine actually was on the podcast before on episode 375 to talk about her first book, Amanda the Teen Activist. That wasn't that long ago. She's really she's really churning them out. And we are so excited not only to have her back, but to talk about this brand new book, which has all sorts of ideas for kids who want to get active for animals. Well, and far more than that, I would say the vast majority of this interview is not about kids at all, but this book has something for everyone. And I really appreciate that Catherine is a creative soul. She runs a a hand rescue. She talks about what it's like to be a writer. And she really wrote her book, yes, for young people, but really for anyone who wants to change the world for animals. So I hope you enjoy it. I know you will. And this week on The Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Catherine. So as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it and you want to, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock Friday Zoom calls, which going forward will be once a month at 4 p.m. Eastern or 9 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And there we focus on how to be better activists and how to take care of ourselves. And, and we also speak to some inspiring guests. Most recently, we had comedian Mike Kaplan as a guest, which was, of course, amazing because he is, of course, amazing. So if you're a member of the Flock, Check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Yeah, I loved that. Uh, we, we frequently bring back podcast guests at the request of the Flock. So Mike was recently a podcast guest and people loved him. So that was super fun. Another thing that is super fun, and I'm looking for an official sponsor to send me here. <laughs> okay, not really. That part was a joke. But New York City has some big news. The very uber fancy top restaurant, 11 Madison Park, has gone plant-based. I don't think it's totally vegan, but it's very vegan-friendly, and it's almost totally vegan. And it was uh, announced by the chef and co-owner, Daniel Hum, who specifically tied it to the fact that it that having animal products or, or meat in particular as he puts it are not sustainable he wrote in the midst of last year when we began to imagine what EMP would look like after the pandemic when we started to think about food in creative ways again we realized that not only has the world changed but we have changed as well it was clear that after everything we all experienced this past year we couldn't open the same restaurant With that in mind, I'm excited to share that we've made the decision to serve a plant-based menu in which we do not use any animal products. Every dish is made from vegetables, both from the earth and the sea, as well as fruits, legumes, fungi, grains, and so much more. So maybe... Maybe it is totally vegan. I thought it I thought it wasn't. The restaurant is not totally vegan. All of the food, I think, is vegan. They are allowing uh, dairy milk for people's coffee and tea, and I think honey for the same. And But if you go there and order food and alcohol, you're good. <laughs> well, <laughs> those are what my I would like to do if I was much wealthier. 
I mean, it's so funny because speaking of which, like I was kidding when I said, uh, when I said I'm looking for a sponsor, but it like, at first I thought, oh, I'm going to totally go. It'll be a fancy night out. I'm so excited. And then I, cause I just thought it was a fancy restaurant and I haven't been out to eat and like, you know, like everyone else in like, you know, over a year, what a perfect way to start. But then I realized how much money we were talking about and we're looking at like, <laughs> Like a thousand dollars or so, up to up to a thousand dollars or so for like an experience. So no, well, I can't. No, I think I think it's a thousand dollars for two people. Let's let's not get completely careful. Oh well, then I'll go. Let's, <laughs> then that's fine. Well, it, well, I know. I mean, even I was I was thinking a higher number than I think that you were, but I was still a little shocked at the idea of dropping five hundred dollars for dinner. That's with alcohol, though. I mean, I guess if you really like to bang it back, then it would be more than, than $500. But but this is a three Michelin-starred restaurant. I read this article about it, which was talking about how good the service is. And apparently, each table kind of has a staff. <laughs> and I heard one story about how, how there were these people in town from some other country, and they had their kids with them. So apparently... You know, the, their kids were spending five hundred dollars for dinner too, and it was snowing, and they the kids had never seen snowing. So one of the waiters took them across the street to the park. Oh my God! <laughs> for a little lark. So uh, if you want to go to the park, um, they'll take you there. And if you, it sounds like the the food is going to be just completely insane. So I really do want to try it sometime. But yeah, I don't know whether I can possibly manage that. <sighs> Well, I mean, also taking kids there. Oh my God. They'd be, I'd be like, if I was a kid, it would have been like, I don't want that food to touch that food. And I, I want, where is my peanut sure, and jelly? I'm sure your staff would arrange for separate plates for all of your dishes. Yeah, probably. But anyway, it is exciting news. Aside from our, like, you know, wanderlust to go there, it is exciting news. Certainly for the animals, it's a very big deal for this kind of an experience to be made plant-based. So holy crap. Yay. Yeah, no, this is huge. Like the minute I saw it, I just thought this is huge. And everybody mm -hmm. I've mentioned to who isn't vegan. And of course I've mentioned it to everybody <laughs> who's vegan is like, what? Right. Like right. it's just legitimized veganism in this entirely new way. I hope they don't close. Oh my God. <laughs> you went there. That's nice. Let's just take a moment to enjoy it, Marianne. Uh, so we do have a really, we have a fantastic guest, but before we get to Catherine, we actually have a really special treat for our listeners today. I, uh, we have a flock member, Diane Waltner, who is a writer and, and an author, and she joins us a lot on the Flock Friday Zoom calls. So we have gotten to know her a little bit and it's been really cool to get to know her at this particular time when her new memoir was coming out and it is called Evolving into Wholeness, A Journey of Compassion. And actually Diane joined us recently on the Flock uh, Friday call to, to do a reading and it, everyone loved it so much. We asked her if she would do a reading for you on the full podcast. So we have like a, about a five minute or so clip from, from Diane's book. And I'll just tell you a little bit more about her to give you an idea of the book she'll be reading from. You should know that she grew up in rural Kansas where her family ran a chicken hatchery. And she was an introverted, sensitive child who was bullied at school and her sense of solidarity with the underdog really drives her commitment to justice for non-human animals. Diane has struggled with depression and despair, which I think a lot of 
activists can relate to from time to time. And she self-medicated with alcohol for many years before learning to love herself and finally quit. And her story is a true hero's journey, complete with dark nights of the soul, an abiding love for all creation, and a very strong dedication to the cause. Diane currently lives in Wichita, Kansas with her feline companion, Mandy. And here is an excerpt from Diane Waltner's book, Evolving into Wholeness. Hi, I'm Diane Waltner, a proud flock member and the author of the new memoir, Evolving into Wholeness, A Journey of Compassion. Today, I'll be reading an excerpt from my book. If you're interested in reading more, you can get a copy in Kindle or print format on Amazon. Because of some nagging doubts, I was feeling compelled to become vegetarian, although I fought hard to ignore and resist that compulsion. To complicate the matter further, I had to keep all these thoughts and feelings to myself. At that time, none of my new vegetarian friends had any idea of what I had done or witnessed at the hatchery. I couldn't talk with them about it because I was ashamed of what I had been a part of, and I couldn't talk with my old friends about it because they had done the same things and didn't see anything wrong with it. I had always been opposed to the use of animals for fur and had never had any desire to own one, and never knowingly did. After reading Mankind by Cleveland Amory, the images of animal cruelty involved with the fur industry had stuck in my mind. It was easy to protest something that my family and I had never been a part of and which I felt was completely unnecessary. There are so many alternatives to fur, and it certainly wasn't required for one's health. Vegetarianism was another matter, however. Having grown up in a farming community and having been involved in the animal agriculture industry, this was much more difficult. I felt becoming vegetarian would mean betraying my family, the only people who had always been there for me and had always been by my side and loved me. So it was a real dilemma. How could I reject my upbringing and my family's livelihood and abandon all the beliefs I'd grown up with, that animals were here for our use and that humans required animal products to be healthy? Was that even true? Surely it must be, since that's what I had been taught and had always thought. I couldn't forget the four food groups we studied in school. Meat, dairy, fruits and vegetables, breads and cereals. Animal products were supposed to fill half our plates. Could it be that we were given incorrect information? At that point, veganism was not even a consideration. Just eliminating one major food group seemed too daunting in itself. The common questions just kept popping up. What would I eat? Where would I get my protein? Isn't that what cows, pigs, chickens, and turkeys were here for? I admired the courage of John Robbins, the author of Diet for a New America, who had walked away from his family's business, Baskin Robbins. I was drawn in, very impressed that he made the decision to go against his family in order to promote a healthier and kinder society. I wished that I could be that brave, but it was so scary. And how could I give up the smoked turkey I loved so much? and the chicken fried steak, and the fried chicken, and the pork sausage, and the pot roast. I certainly wasn't considering this decision because I didn't like the taste of meat. I loved meat, and it was very hard for me to think about never eating it again. The internal struggle was intense, and I often cried and or drank myself to sleep. 
Change is difficult, especially when that change involves your self-identity and possible disconnection from those you love. I tried to avoid thinking about it, but my conscience wouldn't let it go. I was so torn. Would my family feel rejected by my decision? I loved my parents dearly, and the thought of doing something they might see as rejection tortured me. I knew they were good people, pillars of the community, always ready to lend a helping hand. They were very generous and taught me the importance of giving, of time, talent, and treasure to the church, to the community, to society. I feel so blessed to have had such loving parents. Yet I struggled with how to reconcile the knowledge that these good people were inflicting such suffering on innocent beings. And what about my friends, some of whom had worked with me for years at the hatchery? Even worse was another possibility. Would my family reject me? Much of my life I'd been an outcast. All I wanted to do was to fit in and be accepted, trying to conform to society's standards. So the thought of being rejected by some of the few people who had always loved and supported me was terrifying. I still wanted to be loved and accepted by the family, but no longer wanted to be associated with what had been our livelihood and the business with which our family had been strongly identified. At times, the emotional and mental pain was so incredibly intense that I once again had frequent thoughts of suicide, feeling that I didn't belong anywhere. I felt alone, and I didn't see any hope for improvement. Life just felt too painful. Those early years as a fat, bullied child had helped, taught me a lot about what it's like to feel alone, helpless, miserable, powerless, and tormented. I was starting to see that I shared an emotional connection in a very small way with the animals who are exploited and tortured daily their entire lives, who are completely powerless, on farms, in circuses, in research labs, in slaughterhouses. I spent many sleepless nights tossing and turning as I went over in my mind what I felt that I needed to do. I tried unsuccessfully to forget everything I'd seen and heard in a film, but the slaughterhouse scenes in particular stayed with me. Once again, I often turned to alcohol when I couldn't cope with the pain, the guilt, the shame. I would relish the feelings of warmth and relaxation as I took those first sips. As I sank deeper into oblivion, the critical voices in my head would shut up and I would blissfully pass out. It was becoming increasingly clear to me that I could not continue living the way I had been. I either needed to change my way of life or end it all. Thank you for listening. You can purchase my book, Evolving into Wholeness, A Journey of Compassion, on Amazon and can find more information on my website, evolvingintowholeness.com. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Diane. We are so grateful to you for sharing that with our flock and with the our Henhouse listeners. What a special treat to be able to, to really just sort of lose ourselves for a moment into this really touching, powerful, inspiring, authentic story. And as Diane knows, and I think as, as everyone listening to this knows, I am very passionate about personal narrative as a means to change the world for animals. So I celebrate, applaud, and support Diane. And I hope that all of you do too. Yeah, it was really beautiful. I am really very moved by her work in writing this book. And 
And I thank her so much for, for gifting that to us. And now let's get to the interview with Catherine Kelleher, who, as I mentioned, is the founder of New South Wales Hen Rescue, which is an Australian charity that rescues, rehabilitates, and rehomes hens and other animals from factory farms. Both Catherine and New South Wales Hen Rescue have received awards for animal activism and rescue. She is also the author of two books, Amanda the Teen Activist and her new book, Saving Animals, A Future Activist's Guide, which is published by Ashland Creek Press. And she'll be joining Jasmine right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome back to our henhouse, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me, Jasmine. It's great to be back. So when was the last time you were on? I should have looked this up beforehand because it's been a while. It has been a while. It was 2017, the beginning of. It's kind of flown by in many ways and I'm you know, I'm still busy rescuing hens, and but in other ways, so many things have changed. And of course, the whole world's gone through some some pretty big things since then. So, but yeah, it was so much fun speaking to you then, and I'm very excited to do it again. Right, me too. I and I appreciate you staying up late. Tell our listeners where you're joining us from today. So I am in Berrima in the Southern Highlands, which is a little village about an hour and 40 minutes from Sydney. So it's just past 11 at night here and I've got all the animals around me who who are meant to be going to bed and and are refusing at the moment. So yeah, it's a lovely little um, area, but you'd think it would be warm being in Australia, but no, it's it's known to be very cold here. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate that the animals are staying up for the interview, too. <laughs> I, I know it's so always a, a challenge to figure out the big time differences. So we appreciate it very much. And 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 speaking of appreciation, congrats. And I appreciate your latest book, which is called Saving Animals. And it is both a collection of inspiring stories about young activists and inspiring stories about animals plus a how-to. So mazel tov, what an accomplishment. Thank you. I'm really excited. And whilst I have published a book before, it was self-published. This is my first book published by, you know, a publishing house. And even though it's a little one, a wonderful little one, Ashland Creek Press, and it's just so exciting. I got the books um, delivered just the other day and to see it and to hold it and the words of these amazing young activists, it's just, oh, you know what it's like, Jasmine, when you put all this work into a book and you finally have it and you can share it with people. It's a, a strange feeling, but it's it's really great to, yeah, to be almost there. Well, yeah, absolutely. I do know the feeling and I'm very happy for you, but I'm also happy for everyone listening to this because this book is like right in the pocket of what our listeners are excited about. Why did you decide to write it? So I had self-published a book called Amanda the Teen Activist, which was a fictional story. And this book was about a, a girl who 
stumbles upon a battery farm near her school and then sets out to bring about change and try to end the cruelty. And when I was selling it at markets, vegan markets, vegan fests, I had a lot of people, both young and old, say to me, this is great, but how do I, what do I do? I, I want to do something like Amanda in the book, but how, how do I do it? And I had other people asking about my story, about starting New South Wales Hen Rescue, about rescuing animals and liberating, and that side of things. And I, I got the question enough times in the end that I thought, okay, let's put it together. And because of the target audience for Amanda, Amanda, the teen activist, apart from my beautiful sister, Amanda, who I originally wrote it for, it was aimed or is aimed, I should say, at eight to 12-year-olds. And that meant I got to speak to some amazing young people. And they just started to inspire me. I think sometimes they'd ask me questions about how they could get involved as if I was the one uh, who had something to impart and I would find myself learning all kinds of things from them. So, and talking to them about their feelings about animals and, you know, what had changed for them. Even after reading Amanda the Teen Activist, some of them had gone vegan. And I, I just found that this is almost a book writing itself because people, they're telling me these stories and they're asking me these questions that I can answer. And so it led me to putting it together. And I started to contact young activists and, and, and there's, you know, people from, of all different ages within that. So I didn't stick to eight to 12 in the end for the, for the next book. I, I spoke to people between ages six and 22. So I really spoke to all, and it was amazing to find that six-year-olds, whilst they might be doing slightly different things from 22-year-olds, they were still having an impact. Uh, so it was, well, as I scheduled all these interviews and I began learning so much from these people and it, because I can be someone that perhaps is a bit jaded, I've had some situations where I've seen a lot of animal cruelty and I can lose hope. And I know that we always say on our hen house that hope is a strategy. I hear you say it. And I try. I do try that. But I do also lose hope sometimes. And But to speak to these young people who were coming up and they had new ideas and they were working on different things and teaching me things too, I actually found myself feeling quite hopeful for real, <laughs> not just as a strategy. Oh, wow. So Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I mean, real hope. Who knew? Especially <laughs> when you've devoted your life to saving animals and writing about them. I, that That is inspiring to me. I thought we might pick out an animal and then an activist and you can tell us their stories. So if that's okay with you, and speaking of hope, can we start with Hope the Chicken? Oh, I'd love to. Hope is, well, she was. She She's passed away since, but she was such a beautiful girl. So what happened with Hope is that there was a group called Sydney Bird Save and, you know, the save movements across the world. So this was Sydney Bird Save and they were holding a vigil outside of a chicken slaughterhouse in Sydney. And it was going as vigils usually do where you bear witness and you maybe take some film of the, you know, the poor babies on the way to slaughter. But the difference with this one is that the organisers, I wasn't even there, by the way, the organisers managed to speak to some staff members and eventually somehow spoke to the person in charge. And they asked, they just tried their luck and asked if they would they would surrender a chicken or some chickens or just one chicken. And they agreed, which I still find to be amazing. 
And the organiser and her partner went inside and they saw all of the crates, which the listeners are familiar with how the chickens are at this point. And the guy who was working there just pulled one out and that was hope. She was somehow, she'd got that far. She'd gone from the farm to the slaughterhouse. She was waiting in the crates and somehow she was safe. And they called me because they, they didn't have anywhere to take her. And I came straight away. I drove up. It was quite late at night as these vigils often take place at night. They had her and I just cried. Honestly, I saw her and it was something about the her little blue eyes, the way she was cheeping. Because she, they are, you know, they're little babies. They're six weeks old. And, and then seeing that there was still a truck there waiting, I just couldn't. I was just like, she deserves this so much, but so do all of them. And then I just, so I had a cry and then I just concentrated on hope and got her comfy in the car, took her home. And the next day, I thought she's going to be really scared. She's going to need some time to chill out. She won't be with the other chicken. She just needs some time to like relax and realize that we're not going to hurt her. So I had her just outside my window. I had a little desk that looked out and she had her own little area so she could see the chickens, but she couldn't, you know, get in a fight or no one could pick on her. And there were some steps that went up to the back door and I, I went out to check on her and she saw me. I went back inside. Then I popped out again. She was halfway up the steps. I had no, I didn't <laughs> think, I didn't think that she would want human attention. Anyway, I sat on the balcony, just letting her come to me. I've got this on video too. She comes up and sits on my lap and snuggles in as close as she can. I couldn't believe it. I honestly couldn't. She'd been through, she had seen her friends slaughtered. She had seen what humans can do. And yet she wanted comfort. And I just, I just let her, I just gave her the comfort. And then I realized, no, that wasn't the strategy for her, that she should have some time to settle in. She wanted to be comforted. And so that's what I did from then on. Um, and she she blossomed even more into a, a more confident girl who who eventually got on with the others and and did have special appreciation of of people. And I think about her so much and because of her breeding, she did pass away from a heart attack. It's just a real struggle with these these animals rescued from the meat industry. But we gave her the absolute best that we could for the time she had with us. And um, I'm just so, so glad, so glad that she got out of there. Oh, wow. That is a... Oh. You know, that story does, that story is very moving, but, and, you know, like maybe it's my mood today, but I am also thinking of the other ones who, who aren't so lucky. So I feel like it, it brings up a lot, you know, and it, and it brings up the utter importance of what we do of one life, you know, of, of saving one life and, and the utter importance of our personal actions to, to impact more than one life. I, that is what gives me hope as a vegan is like with all of the things in the world that I have, I feel like I have no control over. I am so emboldened and I feel so privileged to be able to make a choice to not partake in a violent system and hope the chicken kind of brings that, you know, full, full circle for me. What about one of your young activists who inspire you? Can you tell us one of their stories? Yes. <laughs> Gosh, there's seriously something I could say about every single one of them. I'm going to talk about 
Zoe Rosenberg. She is, she actually first contacted me when she was 11 years old. And I hadn't started this book then, but she, she reached out because she'd seen my work with New South Wales Hen Rescue and she wanted to do the same. And she lives in California and uh, her mum is a vet, which is very handy. So she, I gave her some advice and <laughs> she, I mean, that was a tiny thing I did. I gave her advice. She had all of the will. She had all of the passion. She would have done it anyway. I just hopefully saved her some of the learning curve. She did it. She started an animal sanctuary. She started Happy Hen Animal Sanctuary. She went out and rescued her first wow. her first girls. And then after that, she, she started rescuing more and more animals. And now she's a young woman. And she is, I mean, she's doing some extraordinary things. I mean, there's a there's a variety of things she features a lot in the book you know because she does so much but there's there's things for example she she protested she well she just spoke up when i say protested i mean she spoke up in class about dissecting a worm she refused to do it her taking that action actually ended dissection um in that in that class completely oh. <laughs> That is so cool. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, what amazing impact. And then on the other end of things, because I, I try to say with this book too that, you know, don't don't be put off if people are doing these big things, which I think are wonderful, because also the small things count. But she does do the big things as well. She's she's chained herself to a slaughterhouse where a pig at an, an agricultural course was waiting to be slaughtered to bring attention to that pig. And she named the pig. Dana and she she sat with her and she just until she was forcibly removed she wouldn't leave her and it brought so much attention to the problems with these school and college agricultural uh, schemes so she does I mean she does so much it's hard to cover but and then even little things like stickering like she makes these post-its with different messages about what happens to animals and she'll just go around the supermarket and put these post-its. I mean, they're easy to remove, so it's not like a graffiti vandalism, you know. And she just puts them on certain products on shelves just to make people think about, hey, that's actually a baby chicken, not just a, a ball of flesh. And, you know, it might be something as simple like I, I was uh, killed at six weeks old or I, you know, all different messages to make people think. So, I mean, I find her, and every time I follow her on Instagram, I see she's doing some other new amazing things. And it's really like that for so many of the young people in the book. They're not just, I mean, since even I've written it, they're doing new things. And I would definitely encourage people to look them up and, and follow them. I mean, even um, Hayley Thomas, who you've had on your podcast, uh, she's one of the yeah, actors. Yeah, I love her. Yeah. Uh, she's amazing. And she's on the cover, one of us. <laughs> and she's in there a lot. And she, I mean, she's she's come at it from the point of view of nutrition and providing this healthy nutrition for people uh, who wouldn't otherwise probably be able to access it and you know she's she's done a, a speech opening for Michelle Obama she's uh, created this organization which people can listen to about on our hen house where she she does classes and all of these things to to show people that what they can do um to live a healthier life and of course a vegan life so she's another one who is very inspirational to me. I think there'll be something for everyone. Yeah. So 
in addition to the stories of the animals and the stories of the young activists, what else will people find in your book, Saving Animals? Well, I've tried to include, I guess this is a bit inspired by you, Jasmine, because of the power of telling your own story. You know, like you've said, by using your own narrative and that you can you can bring about change for animals. So I did include a lot of my own story, how I started the hen rescue and even my first experiences, you know, what led me to going vegetarian and then vegan. My first experiences with my dad going fishing and how he viewed it so differently to me, but how actually when we dug down into it, he didn't really like it. He just wanted to be by the river. He didn't want to be killing animals either. So I, there's definitely that side of it. But there's also, we've as well as these interviews, we've taken what they're telling, what these young activists are telling us, and made them into lists and things that you can actually do and put into action. So if we look at, for example, we've got the stories of young people who who have been taking things like blankets and toys to animal shelters in New York just to make the 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 time for the dogs and cats a little bit easier in there and so we might in the book not only have you got that story but you've also got how else can we help companion animals and what can we learn from the young people i mean there's even a checklist that you can look at and ask yourself all kinds of questions about how you could make your companion animals lives better because I, that's something I try to think of all the time. Just because I have an animal rescue and I'm vegan doesn't mean I can't improve. And I have to be aware that it's not just, I, my animals are living lives, my animal friends are living their lives, even when I'm not in the house, even when I'm not here. And I need to think, how are they going to be entertained, sheltered, happy whilst I'm not here? I think we can all do that. Things like if you're walking your dog, are you letting them r smell those messages from their doggy friends, not just like looking at your <laughs> phone and walking them along as quickly as possible? You know, so there's so many things like that. And then uh, there's other real practical things, like one girl called Gemma, she just talked about the importance of having a rescue kit in her car or her dad's car. And that was really useful to me. And it's something I started doing after she spoke about it. It's just about having those basic things. So if you find some wildlife, maybe a bird or who's been hit by a car, you're actually in a position to help them a bit better than you could if you turned up without the appropriate things. So there's ideas. If, so if you want to get into chalking, for example, a lot of the young people have enjoyed chalking messages. Again, it's, it's legal. It just washes away in the rain. But you can really get powerful messages out there. I mean, people stop and read them. They're interested in what you're doing. I've tried it myself. You know, you start conversations with people when you're doing it. And to make it easier, we've got various slogans that you can, you can write if they appeal to you. So that we've tried, I've tried, oh, I love that. tried to make it a bit more practical so that it's not just, I know it can be overwhelming sometimes. And I find this when I listen to interviews with amazing people, I sometimes think, gosh, they must be incredible to do that. What, what kind of special person are they to make, bring about all this change for animals and work so hard? But actually they are, they are great people, but everybody has the potential to do that to do something amazing and and really bring about change for animals. And these young people, whilst I find them very inspirational, a lot of their ideas can be applied by anyone. So that's what I hope people will take. 
Well, so then would you say this book is for all ages? Well, I think that people of all ages could definitely get something from it. If they if there's any interest in activism, I think that it would be a wonderful resource. I think that whilst the interviews are focused on on younger people, I think it would be somewhat arrogant for us for us older folk to say, no, we can't learn anything from the younger generations when we, we really can. I think it's important to look to younger generations whilst also looking at our animal rights history, which I personally love to delve into and to honour and think about all the work that's come before. I think both sides are important. So I, I do think that a lot could be taken from this book by, by any age. One of the things that stands in the way of a lot of young people becoming active for animals is that they just, they don't know what's happening to them. And, you know, of course, adults don't either. I wish that more adults did, but at least adults have access to information if they want it. But but many people just think it's wrong to traumatize children with the truth. You don't agree with keeping it a secret, though, do you? No, I don't think we should. And I, I don't think it's fair to do that. I feel that I would have gone vegetarian. I I went vegetarian at eight years old when I realized the link between the lamb I had been bottle feeding in a petting zoo and the lamb I was served up at dinner. If I had known about this earlier, I would have stopped eating meat. And then it took me Oh, it took me so long to make the connection then between what happens in dairy and egg industries. And I wish that I had had someone to tell me this was before the social media and everything. And now I'm just like, I would have, I would have changed. And I think that these young people deserve to be told and it can be in a gentle way. We can tell people the truth. It's a, I mean, in the book, I, I do go over what happens to animals in the beginning, but I, I don't go into incredibly graphic details, but there is an honesty there about what happens. And it's it's not sugar-coated because this is this is the truth. And it's it's the world that we live in. And to be not to be told the truth is it's almost is almost, you know, being tricked into contributing to something so awful. I, I feel like that's a traumatizing thing for young people. At least it was for me when I realized so I think it's just about that balance. I'm not saying sit them down in front of a film like Dominion or Earthlings when, you know, a five-year-old, but I'm just saying, like, be honest. I mean, books like Ruby Roth's That's Why We Don't Eat Animals are absolutely wonderful for that because they they tell the truth, but they're also not traumatizing. So I just feel it's important to be honest. And I think, I mean, the listeners will understand this, but we often, you might have discussions with people who are not vegan and and they will say things like well the child can choose when they're you know when they're older and they they can make the decision and you kind of i mean my own mum uh, absolutely loved her but she <laughs> she said to my brother because he wanted to be like me and learn about animals he was 10 years younger she just wouldn't allow it and she said when you're 18 you know when you're 18 you can you can learn about it and i, I just don't think that's that's fair i agree i think that it's arguably traumatizing the other way around, you know, like what you're saying. I, I think there are a lot of folks who take that tact of, well, you can make the choice when, when you're ready. But in my opinion, like, why is the, why is the default eating animals? Why can't the default be being vegan? And if as an adult, people, you know, learn about what's going on behind animals and they feel like 
it's okay to exploit and kill them. (laughs) (laughs) Then they can make the choice to assimilate to a society that normalizes violence. But why is the default meat? It's so backwards, so backwards. You know, I think about how our society wraps our collective heads around what the default should be. I was just the other day, you know, this is a slight change of topic, but related. The other day it was International Lesbian Visibility Day. And I was thinking about how as a kid, it was just, I grew up in such a heteronormative environment that it was like straight unless proven otherwise. And I'm not saying that everyone should be treated like they're they're queer, but perhaps we don't need to assign such a, you know, societal prescription to it and just sort of treat people as, you know, individuals. and As and- people, as individuals, yeah. I mean, you summed up exactly what I was trying to say with the this is not, we don't have to say to people, you are meat eaters or you are straight. You know, you can't talk yet, but let's decide that. (laughs) Exactly. You know, we have to give, I honestly think that having vegan children would be, it would be a nice assumption to make because then you're thinking, well, let's not assume they want to hurt anyone. They might, they might want to hurt someone later, but they can do that. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Yeah. Well, so so let's switch gears and talk about the other work that you do, which is the rescue. How many hens do you have and where, what's their story in general? I mean, I know that there, there's all different stories, but like wh- wh- where do you mostly get these hens from? So we have a permanent family, I would say, who of about 35 girls and boys who stay with us because they have disabilities, or perhaps they've recovered, but they've bonded with either each other or with me. And they stay permanently because they're just, they're part of the family now. But the number of our other hens changes all the time because we primarily rescue hens from factory farms. So we do rescue them from all systems, but it is mostly battery cages. And the hens, when we, we get them, they, they can be in quite a state they can be very calcium deficient. I think a lot of the listeners will be familiar with what it's like for hens in battery cages and you can certainly see it on their bodies. And then we we bring them back to the rescue and we watch them take their first steps ever that haven't been on this wire. And they take these huge steps like they're walking on the moon because they've never been able to do it. And just, it only takes maybe... Oh, I don't know, sometimes 30 minutes of sitting with them and they're up there, they're preening, like carefully preening at your clothes, they're jumping on my knee and then you'll have the girls who want to keep to themselves and go and have a, their first ever dust bath or a sunbathe and I just sit with them and let them be and then we rehabilitate them. So if they have, if they do have some disabilities or injuries, we do what's needed. We get some excellent vet care for them. We do any physio or anything like that that's needed. And then if and when they're ready, sometimes it's very soon, other times it takes time, then we find some really beautiful homes for them. And we do have quite the application process because there's some people who are just not good homes for for chickens or other animals. So we want to make sure they're very safe. So that's kind of, we do get them from other, you know, we have chickens who are surrendered, who are, 
you know, we get emails like, I'm going to kill this chicken unless you take them, all those kinds of th- things. But primarily, we're liberating. And it's a bit it's back to what you were saying about hope. It's really, even if we can only liberate 20 hens out of a shed of 100,000 hens, it means everything. I, I do agree with, like, when we were talking about hope earlier, and you, it did make you sad about the others. And I feel the same. I always. I have to do some self-care in that way because I, I go in and I want to save everyone. But we have to remind ourselves that even saving one means the absolute world to that hen. Yeah, it's their whole life. Well, And everyone who rescues chickens sooner or later has to deal with roosters, or at least that's my understanding. So can you elaborate on that? What are some of the issues and, and how do you deal with them as compassionately as possible? Yeah, so whilst we really meant to rescue ex-battery hens as our main thing, when, as soon as people know that you're a chicken rescue, well, we get about three emails a day or messages from people who want to surrender roosters or they've they found dumped roosters on the road. Yeah, there's all kinds of things and it's a real problem and it's I'm just one rescue. This happens to every sanctuary and it's because people are hatching eggs they're either doing this at home or they're, it often happens in schools and childcare centers as part of hatching projects. And they're not thinking, what am I going to do when half of these chicks are boys? And I live in suburbia. And if they start crowing, I'm going to get complaints from my neighbors and they will crow. So it's this lack of, I don't know whether it's, well, it probably is just because people want the cute chicks and they don't want to think through further than that. But when the boys do grow up, in the rare cases, they'll contact a rescue. More likely, they either kill them or they dump them. And then if they are given to shelters, a lot of shelters will put them to sleep fairly quickly. So it's a massive problem. So <laughs> even here, I've, I've uh, recently set up a new location for the hen rescue. And because I was in suburbia previously, previously, so I really couldn't have roosters. And we've only been here a couple of weeks. I've already got 10 roosters, all from, you know, urgent situations. And I just think that this, we need to start educating and people that you've, they've got, it's a bit like with breeding dogs and cats. We can't keep doing this because chickens, as, as the listeners know, are not disposable yet so many people think that they are. So another thing that's that's rife in both Australia and around the world are hatching projects. And that's what I mentioned where they hatch them in schools or preschools very commonly. And it's meant to be this lovely project and they, you know, you have the eggs and you've got the incubator and the children get to see the eggs hatch and they they love them, you know, and then a couple of weeks later, they either get sent back to the company where, you know, there's not a nice ending there, or very often the teachers feel terrible, like they don't want them to send them back. So they put a lot of pressure on the parents to take them. The parents haven't prepared. They they never really thought it through and, and what, what would be involved in caring for chickens. And they certainly didn't think about what to do with a crowing rooster. So that's when we get a lot of people contacting us and other rescues and it, it's just it just has to change and that's what we're trying to take some steps to do now yeah wow that's a lot i wish that we learned to think things through a little bit more fully you know so that it's not up to someone else to you know pick up the pieces later 
especially when we're talking about someone's entire life, their entire existence. And I know that you've had some harrowing experiences rescuing chickens. Can you tell us about the Lakesland Rescue? Yes, the Lakesland Rescue is probably my my most traumatic out of all the rescues that I've done. It, it was in 2018 in June, and we had heard of this situation where a farmer had been starving and dehydrating all of the hens to death, or, I mean, some of them had died and some of them were starving and dehydrating. It had happened because there was a member of the public and she was in the, she was a local in the area and she was driving by and there were, I think she said about 50 chickens on the road. So she stopped, she, she rounded them back up to this barn and when she got there, she discovered what was happening inside and she took photos. She contacted the RSPCA, who are the authorities that can take action here along with the police, and she contacted both of them. She also let us know and I I thought, well, that's terrible and I hope that the RSPCA and the police will do something. Well, 10 days later, I received anonymous footage showing that not only had no action been taken, but it had got a lot worse. So we got on to a member of parliament who's in the Animal Justice Party here, who's, which is an amazing political party, who got onto the head of the RSPCA to take action. And then we made it very clear we were willing to assist with rescuing, with vet bills, with any of that side of things. And we also turned up when they were meant to inspect, this was after, you know, 10 days of leaving it, just to hold them accountable and to be ready to rescue. And <laughs> they did turn up because of the huge amount. I think we had hundreds and hundreds of people call the RSPCA about it. And we waited and they left. They left without, or they went to leave without rescuing a single hen. <laughs> oh I mean, there were, there were around 5,000 girls in there and they didn't save anyone. And I tried to get information before they left. They wouldn't share anything. And so we thought, well, we're going to attempt to rescue them. And there were a number of us who, a fairly large group, uh, who donned the biosecurity gear and we took the carriers up. We went up to the field, went to the shed, and we did our best. The RSPCA officers who were still, you know, they were still on site on their way out, they called the police rather than assisting. And when I got into that shed, I found that not only were they starving and dehydrating, but also they were drowning in muck. Um, a water pipe had actually burst uh, sometime before and hens that I thought were dead in the muck, a, a fellow rescuer called me over and said, this one's still alive. And I, I scooped her up and I couldn't believe it. I was crying. I, I, I would try to keep a cool head usually, but I and I was I, I held her. I later I later called her Nota, um, but at the time obviously she didn't have a name. And I begged the RSPCA officer to help uh, because she was suffocating from the mud in her nostrils, and they just ignored me. And I started to walk down the property, and I saw the police were there. I actually thought this is very naive of me. I thought, good, I can show them. <laughs> They're going to come and help. I walked down. It was a fair walk down. They they ran at me. They tackled me to the ground. 
I was holding another carrier in my arm. It went to the ground and Noda went to the ground. I picked her up again and I ran towards the fence. There were a lot of people still on the other side who were supporters. And an officer held me around the neck and I I held her out like my arms outstretched. And I just, I honestly shouted the loudest I've ever shouted in my entire life. Just help me. I shouted it three times. I remember it clearly. I absolutely boomed it. And someone jumped over the fence and took her. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And yeah, I, I managed to get back to the fence another three times before. And then when they, when they, they say were arresting me. I said, look, I'm going to go easily for you if you go, if you just promise afterwards that you go and help the hens. Like, take me to the station, but can two of you, can some of you just go up and help those hens up there? And they just wouldn't do it. So I just, I just went limp and made them drag me and like stuff me into the thing. And, and as I left, I could see the farmer and his sons picking the girls, some of the girls up by the wings um, and the legs and, and, you know, taking them back. And, in the end, there were 13 of us who were arrested. There were a number of others there, but there were 13 who were arrested. And we've had two years, well, it'll be approaching three years going through court. Uh, we, were, we were charged. This is this is something I think Marianne would be interested in as far as legal. So we were charged with aggravated trespass theft, malicious damage for taking a gate that was propped up with a stick off, like out of the way. We were charged with animal cruelty. We were charged with animal cruelty. So, and that was because of where they had tackled us and, you know, the chickens falling to the floor. So that was dismissed because there was no evidence because it wasn't true. And so far, we've only got the aggravated trespass left. So everything else was dismissed. But the fact, I mean, the newspapers, the media that should have been concentrating on this absolute horror show of what was happening to these animals was focused on this amazing headline for them, which you can imagine, which is animal rescuers charged with animal cruelty. And it was just very distressing. And the next, so Noto means almost there because she didn't survive, but she did, she did get out. And so I called her Nota. But I like to think that maybe she felt some of, some of the love and comfort, but I wish, I mean, if they hadn't tackled me, that would have been a lot easier to give. Every time I look at my girl, Kim, who is actually on the back of Saving Animals. So if anyone gets the book, you'll see a beautiful photo of her. I, she's from there. And I look at her and I think, my gosh, what have, what you have survived. Um, and now you're this, like, this rambunctious personality, this kind of queen of the flock. And it, it was one of those moments, like, hang on a minute this isn't right. We should all be working together to help these animals, you know? <laughs> wow, Catherine, that is a powerful, gut-wrenching story. You mentioned self-care earlier. I'd like to go back to that. <laughs> How do you practice it? Yeah, one of the um, one of my friends and also the activist featured in the book, Charlize, she really prioritizes self-care and I've learned a lot from her. She has done things that are much, uh, she's, she's in the chapter on undercover activism and she's done things and put herself in situations that are very difficult. She was also part of the Lakesland rescue team. She's given me some tips, basically to prioritize self-care before you begin to feel burnt out. Because 
<laughs> by then it's so much harder. I mean, you can still do things to make yourself feel better, but if you can just prioritize self-care. Now it could be different for everyone. And we've in the book I've compiled everybody's different ideas of self-care and what they do. But for me, it's reading something that's nothing to do with animal rights for half an hour before bed. So I have my Kindle. I just read it. I, I like, you know, women's fiction, things that are funny. <laughs> I will do that every night without fail. Listen to podcasts. I listen to podcasts whilst I'm cleaning out the chickens, whilst I'm doing everything. And it, it helps. It's like having, a, it feels like having a community that understands whilst you're you're going through these things. And then I do, whilst I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a fitness freak, <laughs> but I, I do exercise to help with my mental health. And I, I have to set that as the goal because then I get an instant gratification. Um, so if I go out for, if I lift some weights or I go out, for, like today I got really angry. <laughs> I got really angry earlier today. I took myself for a little run by the river. I felt so much better. Whereas if you go at that, for, I don't know, for weight loss or other goals like that, for me, that's not effective. I, I, I do it for only for mental health. So, and then of course, spending time with the animals. So I, to sit down with the chickens, I know not everyone can do this. So this could be your dog or cat or maybe a friend's dog or cat, but I sit down with the chickens it's the most peaceful thing. I mean, I say I don't like meditation, but sometimes I feel like that is pretty close because I sit, they come, the ones that want to come and preen me. Kim is a big preener, who I told you about. She'll preen me. And one of the girls called Desi, who's new, she just hops on my shoulder or my head straight away. I mean, it doesn't matter. No matter how terrible I feel, I feel better. And I try to look at the individuals who have been saved. And people could do this even by going to a farm sanctuary website. I look at the individuals who are with me, but you could look at stories of, of happy stories about who's been rescued. And it it truly makes me feel better. I mean, that's what keeps me going. I, I was listening to an interview you had with an undercover activist who wasn't able to rescue. And I was thinking, my gosh, I don't think I'd be able to keep going because that's really the only way I keep going is to rescue someone every time <laughs> because then if I can be somewhere awful, at least someone's come out, you know. But for everyone, it's different. Someone might find writing or, I mean, I like Zumba. It's so silly. You you dance, you look so silly, but you end up laughing and, and having fun. You just find your thing. My um, Charlize, she loves pole dancing classes. It makes her laugh. It makes her have fun and she gets stronger and more flexible. So it's, you know, it's just finding that thing for you that as much, I love talking to people about animal rights. I love speaking to fellow activists and having that community. I think about it so much, but I think having something else that's just totally just fun is so important. Oh yeah, I, I totally agree with that, all of it. And I'm glad to know that it's something that you are prioritizing. I have a lot more questions for you, but I've kept you a long time. I would love it if you'd stay on for a little bit longer for our bonus content uh, so I can get into a few of these other questions. But before you go, and I hope I'm right here because otherwise I'm going to sound dopey, but I can't let you go without getting you to tell the story of the role that our hen house played in this book coming into existence. Oh, good. I was hoping you were going to ask this. Uh, <laughs> okay, our hen house, you are responsible for 
the publication of this book. So, uh, <laughs> so back in 2019, so I've, I have to tell the listeners, I've listened to every single episode of our Hen House. I'm a proud listener. I've listened to some twice because uh, especially the banter, I love it. So yeah, I was listening to it as usual and I heard, I've, I've heard a number of things about Ashland Creek Press because they featured in all kinds of things over the years, but you spoke, I think it was at the top of the show, you spoke with Marianne about the Siskiyou Prize that Ashland Creek Press were running. I'd never heard of it. And I had already written the book and I and I just thought, oh, wow, this, <laughs> that could be a good opportunity. I didn't think it was, uh, and, and I think you even said, you even said like you were encouraging people to submit work. So I was like, okay, right? I've got these these two women I'm, who are encouraging us, let's do it. So I submitted Amanda's Teen Activist, my first book, which ended up being a semi-finalist in the competition. And uh, then they, Ashton Creek Press contacted me and said, whilst your other book was not, <laughs> did not place in the competition, we'd love to publish it. So I was Oh, oh my goodness. And it was many months later because, you know, it takes a long time. I was over the moon. I couldn't believe it. I, I hadn't actually been expecting that. And yeah, it's definitely thanks to our hen house. And now I've had the most lovely experience. I, I would really encourage people to check out Ashton Creek Press, their website. You'll see, you'll see my book, but you'll also see some other amazing literature all to do with either environment, Oh, it's awesome. I, I've been very lucky. So uh, thank you, our hen house. <laughs> well, I feel like I totally canned that, but it did come up in the research for your interview and I was really excited about it. And also, I mean, I just want to echo what you said about Ashland Creek Press. Like no one is doing quite what they're doing. And I also you know, find their work to be like very high caliber, you know, like we were just chatting a little bit before we started recording and I've been researching a lot of uh, independent publishers and they're not all the same. You know, there's some that are just, you read it and you wonder if there was an editor or like, <laughs> but Ashland Creek Press is phenomenal. I mean, you know, John Yunker and Mitch Raymond who run it are just truly gifted at everything they do, <laughs> like writers, editors, curators, advocates, like you name it. And so I'm thrilled that you wound up finding a home there. And I'm very excited that Arhana has played a little role in that. Oh, they're really lovely. And they I've just done their Writing for Animals course. And I would highly recommend it to anyone who wants to learn a bit more about using your your writing to actually help animals. And it doesn't mean that you have to write a book. It could be articles. It could be letters to the editor. I found it, I mean, I learned so much from Midge and John. So I think if anyone wants to check out Ashland Creek Press, you're going to find some pretty good stuff on there. Absolutely. I agree with that. Well, I do have a few more questions, but for the flock only. The flock has a very literal definition in your life, but we'll use, you can, you can uh, humor me <laughs> by, be, by being somewhat uh, metaphorical here. But uh, before you go, tell our listeners how they can find out more about your work and get a copy of this book and, and just stay on top of your efforts online. 
I would love to to connect to the listeners and they can find me. My personal Instagram account is veganhen. And I'm mainly on Instagram because I just can't deal with the other <laughs> social media. And then Hen Rescue, which is where you're going to find all the stories and these happy stories to cheer you up. You're going to find on NSW Hen Rescue on Instagram. The same on Facebook. We've got a lot of stories on there. And if you want to check out the website, it's henrescue.org. You can go to the shop on there to find the book, but you can also find it in all the online retailers, Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, Ashton Creek Press site. So. I would love it if anyone wants to buy the book, give me feedback or connect in some way. I just literally right now followed you myself. (laughs) So please don't go anywhere, but thank you so much. The book, of course, is called Saving Animals. And Catherine, it's been a true joy and honor to catch up with you again. I really appreciate all that you do to change the world for animals. Thank you so much. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way, and, well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head? Sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R.com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Anxieties are rising. We have two stories this week from the Animal Ag Alliance Summit. You know, because when they have these meetings, they do talk about us. They're both from meatpoultry.com. And the first one is Animal Ag Alliance Summit Report, Working to Keep Animal Protein Star of the Plate. I think the very title of this story is Evidence of Rising Anxieties. We tend to think of them as just this overwhelming force that everybody is participating in and everybody is eating and we are so small and they are so big. That's not how they think about it at all. They are scared. Uh, One of the people who is uh, not scared, she says, is Marianne Smith-Edge. She's one of the people they're reporting on who spoke at this conference. She's from the agri-nutrition edge, and she assured those in the meat industry, all is well. And animal protein is here to stay. Just the fact that they're saying this is, oh, it just, just pleases me no end. One of uh, the things she does point out is that climate change and how food production affects it top the list of current consumer concerns. But, Smith said, the data trends show animal protein will remain on plates. I mean, just think about that. What could the data trends possibly be showing that will predict what will happen when we have no idea what 
climate change is going to bring us, how how things are going to shift. And she did admit that things will change. For example, she thinks that there will be continue to be a growing percentage of flexitarians as the years progress. Well, you know, I agree with you, Marianne. It does seem to be really, really hard to get people to go vegan, but it does seem to be a lot easier and getting ever easier every day to get them to cut down. And according to this, consumer trends have shown that animal protein is not going away, but today's consumer is looking for more of a variety. Well, you know, the animal ag industry can't afford to get really small. They have all of this infrastructure to support. And if they get really small and their profits start decreasing and the slaughterhouses won't be able to stay in business because they're all based on volume. Everything is based on volume. That's my personal opinion anyway. Rachel Copay, who's another person who spoke at this, quote, suggested the animal protein industry adopt some of the strategies that the new and trendy competitors use for its own advantage. <laughs> so they're trying to steal marketing strategies from Beyond Meat. One of the one of the companies she mentions is Beyond Meat. A key for Beyond Meat success has been positioning itself in the meat category, not frozen, for example. Well, meat is already in the meat category, so I don't see what's what good that's going to do them. But she's suggesting that there are ways that they can, quote, work smart to maintain global consumer belief that animal protein is the star of the plate and collaborate. Oh, this is from the Marianne Smith uh, woman. Planet and personal health is not one or the other when it comes to animal or plant-based food. It's the importance of working together to create a sustainable solution for all. What? <laughs> blah, blah. Corporate gobbledygook. That's all they've got anymore is corporate gobbledygook. Well, speaking of Beyond Meat, there's an article in Consumer Freedom. And uh, I know I said there were two articles about the alliance. I'll get to the other one after this. But I just wanted to mention this because it's also about Beyond Meat. Um, in Consumer Freedom, Beyond the Bird, Beyond Meat to debut fake chicken. And uh, this is exciting news. I didn't actually know this. Beyond Meat appears to be gearing up for its newest line of fake meat products, faux chicken. When do they use fake and when do they use faux? I guess it's kind of interchangeable. And apparently it's supposed to be coming out this summer. And uh, so they mention, and I kind of remember this in 2019, they had a test run with KFC in Atlanta, and it was wildly, insanely popular. And as this points out, while the test was a commercial success, nutritionists say the product is far from a health success. And then they quote uh, nutritionist Whitney Stewart, processed foods, whether they're meat-based or plant-based, aren't a nutritional need in our diet, especially when they involve low-quality oils. Most fake meat is made with oils like vegetable oil. Well, the, the article goes on to say, most fake meat is made with oils like vegetable oil which contain high amounts of saturated fat. All right, hold the phone here. <laughs> In the first place, whether or not the chicken that they are going to be selling at KFC or other uh, fried chicken outlets is healthy should be taken in the context of the fact that they're trying to compete with KFC chicken, which, you know, it's their main concern here is not health. The people who are buying this are not health nuts, that's for sure. So that's one thing. They're trying to compete on taste and uh, and they are healthier, I'm sure, but, you know, not much. But then this thing like fake meat is made with oils like vegetable oil, which contain high amounts of saturated fat. Well, vegetable oil doesn't contain high amounts of saturated fat. Vegetable oil is what you have when when you want to cut down on your saturated fat. I mean, I guess there are some vegetable oils, but what? Crazy. And then this uh, nutritionist said... Our goal for nutrition in plant-based food is whole vegetables, 
fresh or frozen, in their natural form, not in processed patty. Well, yeah, like, why don't we stick to making foods, like feeding people whole vegetables, like a a plate with a a whole carrot on it, a whole eggplant, (laughs) a whole whatever, and they can sell uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Ah, no, I don't think so. Uh, We're a little smarter than that. They wish we weren't, but it appears that we are. All right, my next article is also from Meat and Poultry and also about the um, Animal Ag Alliance Summit Report. Responding to disruptive animal activists. Always a major concern when they get together. They had a couple of speakers. One was John Sansonito, who is president of Information Network Associates. It sounds like he's a consultant on security, though they didn't say that. He points out that protesters have been organizing, even during the pandemic, via apps or social media. They've been relying on misinformation as a catalyst for their actions. All right, wait for this. Many, this is a quote, many are trying to link animal agriculture to climate change. (laughs) Well, that's really not too hard, is it? Uh, Another speaker was James Noggle, who is the assistant sheriff with the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office. Speaking to the industry here, that's charming. That shows a real uh, neutral stance on the part of law enforcement, doesn't it? He said that in his experience, protesters are typically not local, do not understand the agriculture community, and have a different view of the industry. Well, this is one of my, this is, they have definitely have a different view of the industry than you do. Uh, my pet peeves that only people who live near factory farms are allowed to complain about what's happening to the animals inside of those factory farms. Like, we are the consumer. Everybody is, well, we're not the consumers, but but consumers everywhere, people who care about animals everywhere, that would be us. And are are participating in this in this industry in a million different ways, and and there we are the only ones who the animals have to stick up for them. So don't talk to me about local. Unbelievable. I hate these people. All right, forget I said that. All right, Sansonito also said that the most common type of illegal action protesters engaged in was trespassing. Okay, again, wait for it. Followed by animal liberation and vandalism. They are actually using the term animal liberation to define the crime or the alleged crime that they're talking about. The sheriff guy said his department has a zero tolerance policy for such crimes and they do not issue citations, but rather charge offenders with felonies when possible. Uh, Yeah, neutral law enforcement here. Noggle also stressed the importance of industry members being involved in agricultural advocacy organizations to help push through good legislation. All right, so the sheriff is going to the industry to tell them to push to get laws benefiting the industry passed so he can crack down on protesters. This is charming. All right, so so this other speaker, Nancy Daniel, said that when incidents occur and media shows up, she's from a communications company, the industry needs to understand the media often frames stories to include a victim, a villain, and a hero. Often, the victims are the animals. The animal rights activists are the heroes. And the agriculture industry is perceived as the villain. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> that sounds about right. And she suggests that they not play into this narrative. Well, that narrative is kind of kind of the way it is. So I don't know how they're going to avoid avoid playing into it. Finally, back to Sansonito. Uh, he said it is important for the industry members to make sure that they have everything in good order, as both small and large farms get attacked on a regular basis. Of course. He's, he's a security consultant. <laughs> so 
the article goes on to say, and it is always helpful to have a security assessment done by a professional. Well, yeah, I bet he does think that's a good idea. And notice by having everything in good order, he obviously means not the animal care, which would be impossible, but their security assessment. Oh, I hate these people. Oh, good, I said that. All right, that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.